Welcome to Samford University's Campus Worship. We hope you enjoy the presentation. Well, I'm grateful to Matt for his welcome and for the invitation to share from Scripture about one of my favorite people in the Bible. Let's hear what the Gospel of John has to say. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples were meeting was locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed him his hands and his side, and then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so have I sent you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven, and if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the marks of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered, My Lord and my God. When our youngest daughter, Stephanie, had her second child, a little boy, just three years ago, they called him Daniel. Thomas. I thought that was a great combination of names. It's not an oxymoron because strong faith represented by the courage of Daniel in the Hebrew Bible and the reality of doubt, questioning, uncertainty in the experience of Thomas often, often live together in the spiritual journey that we're part of. I confess there are times when it's easier to believe some days than other days. Perhaps that's why I like Thomas. The paradox of this story is that, in one sense, the word for doubt in Greek doesn't appear in the Johannine account. We all have doubts from one time to another, so let's not be too critical of this guy who has been labeled by this phrase, doubting Thomas, for centuries. Let's not begrudge Thomas for doubting, because Jesus longs in this post-resurrection appearance to minister his presence, to give to Thomas a sense of peace, and to know that his presence will always be with him as he gives to him the gift of the Holy Spirit. There is an intrinsic connection, I think, between faith and doubt, and the church ought to be big enough to accommodate both within the walls. It's possible to believe and to doubt for the wrong reasons, but it's possible to believe and to doubt for the right ones. And sometimes we don't actually know the difference between the two, or we find it difficult to know what is unbelief, what is doubt, what is faith, what is certainty. The church should be inclusive. should be inclusive to be big enough to hold Thomas the empiricist, as well as John the mystic, and Peter who was often baffled and confused. So Thomas wasn't there that first night when Jesus came to the disciples and shows them his wounds, his feet, and his side. Let's not be too hard on him. 
I wonder of how many sermons you've heard in church where the main point of this story is Thomas wasn't there for the evening service. If he had been there for the evening service, he wouldn't have missed the blessing. Well, if that's the point of this story, then stop the bus I want to get off. I sometimes wonder if Thomas had had enough of the pity parties and he didn't want to go to yet another one. Actually, I like the suggestion that Thomas wasn't quite ready. Thomas had been so traumatized by the crucifixion of Jesus, by the fact that he, along with the other disciples, had run away and fled, hadn't been there when Jesus needed him the most. He was trying to process everything that was happening, all the stories that had happened that first Sunday, that first Easter Sunday, when the women told about seeing the tomb empty. He was trying to process it all. He wanted, Bruce Milne says, the death of Jesus was such an overwhelming reality that he must get alone to try and come to terms with it. Here's one for the introverts, alone time. Thomas, you see, loved Jesus so much, so traumatized, he needed to work out in his own mind and heart everything that was happening. Anyway, it's totally understandable to me that when Thomas is told by the other disciples that they've seen the Lord, that he kind of blurts out, well, unless I see the wounds in his hands and his feet and his side, I will not believe. William Sullen Coffin wrote a book entitled Letters to a Young Doubter. He wrote, in my experience, religious faith, despite doubts, is far stronger than one without doubts. Doubts move you forward, not backward, just as long as you doubt out of a love of truth, not out of some pathological need to doubt. Faith doesn't have to be strong to be faith. Jesus taught us that when he told us the parable of the mustard seed, the smallest of seeds, but faith is there in its seed form. Doubt is not only natural, but sometimes it's healthy to push us forward, to reflect more deeply, to search for what is true. When we face doubts for the first time, we can do one of three things. We can, we can just reject everything that we believed up to that point and become somebody who is an unbeliever. Or we can go the opposite extreme and we can stifle our feelings, retreat into an inflexible faith where everything is accepted as certain and we don't allow any questions to come. Or we can face our doubts directly. We can re-examine what we've previously assumed and work on reconstructing a faith that is our faith. Many of you will have come to Samford with the faith of your church, with the faith of your family. You've had to discover, rediscover here, a faith that is your own, that you will own as your faith. And for it will be something that will help you to face the future. The Christian faith, the life of discipleship, is a life of learning. We are taught, we are learning, not learning by rote to achieve test scores, or an A minus, or an A even. Discipleship is sometimes about raising questions, and the goal is to acquire the capacity to inquire, to create, to innovate, and to challenge, and for us to discover fresh things about God and the life of following Him. 
As one of my favorite theologians, Jürgen Moltmann, once said, theology is an incredible adventure. It's an adventure of ideas. It includes a questioning theology, a theology of curiosity, not speculation for speculation's sake, but it's rooted in the reality of the world in which we live in, which throws up questions and doubts and enigmas and paradoxes to force us to think what we believe about God and to live it out in our daily lives. To discover as the disciples on the first Easter Sunday and the next Easter Sunday discovered the resurrection of the crucified one who had immersed himself in the difficulties and problems and sufferings of this world and now came out of the tomb to bring his peace and the gift of his spirit. But back to Thomas. What do we know about this guy? Well, he's forever described as doubting Thomas. Only in the fourth gospel does Thomas come alive in a few different passages. Here we are told, as in two other occasions in the gospels, that he was called the twin. And we're not told who his twin was. I find that enormously frustrating because it would help me perhaps to understand the family background, who this guy was related to, and why he was known as a doubter. Then in John 11, it's the first time we really meet Thomas. It's the story of Jesus being called to go to Bethany. His friend, Lazarus, whom he loves, is sick. Mary and Martha send the message and they anticipate that Jesus is going to come immediately, come in the Delta shuttle through Atlanta to Bethany, because Lazarus needs him. And Jesus doesn't make any move whatsoever. He waits three days, and then he says, let's go. And at that point, Thomas says, well, let's go and die with him. It's a kind of Winnie the Pooh Eeyore moment. You get the impression that Thomas is always looking on the dark side. He's a pessimist. His gloom has despair written all over it. If we go back to Bethany, it's going to be curtains, two miles from Jerusalem, and they're all after us. They'll take our Lord and well, let's just go and die with him. I like the way, in fact, one writer suggests that what we have here is a realistic understanding that the other disciples didn't have, that to be a follower of Jesus as he's going towards the cross is to listen to what Jesus says when he says, if you want to be one of my followers, you've got to take up my cross and follow me. Thomas actually had thought through the implications of being a follower of Jesus. And when it seems that Jesus going to Bethany will mean that he will die, then Thomas is ready to pay the price. Then in John chapter 14, we have Thomas again. Jesus has been saying, I'm going to prepare a place for you, so on and so forth. And there's silence because Jesus has said, you know the way to the place where I'm going and nobody knows what to say. Like that moment when the professor asks a question and nobody's done the reading. And then suddenly Thomas pipes in and he says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? <laughs> he's probing, he's inquiring, he's asking because he wants to know more. 
He's that guy who asks questions without being thought to be the teacher's pet. He loves Jesus, and the thought of Jesus leaving him distresses him so much because he wants always to be with him. These are the incidents that give us a fuller picture of who Thomas was, a twin, somebody who asked good questions, somebody who wanted to pay the cost of discipleship. So Jesus comes to him and he says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Believing is not easy. It's a process, it's a journey. We come to believe. Well, when Jesus meets with Thomas, there's really no lectures. There's no stern rebuke. There's no chastisement. Weary soul, confused soul, troubled soul, questioning soul. Whoever we are this morning, whatever you're thinking, Jesus says, come and touch me. Come and experience my presence. Receive my peace and I will breathe the Holy Spirit into your life. When I was a child, I was frightened of the dark. So I had to have a light on in my bedroom to get me to sleep. Now we have blackout curtains so that I can continue to sleep when dawn comes and the light tries to stream through the drapes and the blinds. Go figure. There's another kind of darkness, however, a darkness of doubt that sometimes overwhelms us as Christians. It's not just a passing phase of doubt. It's what the history of spirituality has called the dark night of the soul. Second Isaiah speaks of it in Isaiah 50. Let the one who fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant, but who walks in darkness and has no light, that's a hard experience to pass through. Isaiah seems to suggest that it's not because you're not living a life of obedience to God. Actually, you're walking with Him. You're obeying the Lord. You're fearing the Lord. You're honoring Him. You're expressing your love to Him. Yet, yet, you're in the midst of the darkness, and there doesn't seem to be light at the end of the tunnel. Isaiah says to such a person, don't give up. <laughs> Let them, he says, trust in the name of the Lord. Night, darkness, light, doubt, faith. In the first of the two creation accounts of Genesis, we read these words, God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night and there was evening and there was morning, the first day. I read that again recently and suddenly realized something I'd never really noticed before, that the night is just as much a part of the day as is the light. God not only creates the light, He incorporates the darkness into the day. Periods of darkness sometimes make us value the light that we have. In the dark night, we trust when we cannot trace the presence of God. Isaiah says, rely on the name of the Lord. And the word is a Hebrew word, which means to lean for support. It's the root of the word that is translated staff in Psalm 23. 
The Lord is my shepherd. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me, they support me, they encourage me. When you walk in the darkness, you need somebody to help you to see the way forward. The presence of Jesus is there to bring us his peace and his love and his kindness. So we experience doubt. Don't be frightened of the doubt. Don't squirm. Don't resist the questions that doubt brings, but seek to work through the doubt so that you come to believe and that faith becomes your own. What happened to Thomas? Well, there's significant evidence that he went to India as an apostle and an evangelist. The St. Thomas Christians are an ancient body of Christians in southwest India who trace their origins to the activity of Thomas the Apostle in the first century. Philip Jenkins, research professor at Baylor University, speaks of them using Syriac and numbering about seven million Thomas Christians amongst Orthodox, Catholic, and Protestant Christians today. South Indian communities trace their lineage of faith back to this guy who wasn't there on that first Easter Sunday and has been known for generations as the doubter. But there are seven million Thomas Christians in India today. That's not bad for a doubter. For more information about Samford University, check out samford.edu.